<laughs> well, I was gonna get it started. Why, why not? Uh, yeah, but it, it, no, it's, it sounds way better now for sure. Oh, okay, good, good, good. For sure, uh, audio is still like such a tricky thing to deal with. Like, mm-hmm. it never solve it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. 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 True. 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 All right. Well, uh, who do we have uh, today? <laughs> <laughs> I got a good friend, Shem Shem Campbell from uh, Dallas, Texas. I don't know if you wanted to release that information, Shem. Should I have text with you first? I should well, just gone with Shem. You pretty much already said it, so. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can always edit it. <laughs> hey, right, it's okay. I, I'm in Dallas. I'm in Dallas, so it's all right. Oh, yeah. right We're on. a big city. Yeah. Just don't give out city. my address or my phone number, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, <laughs> man. Uh, so a little quick backstory. So I met Shem through a mutual friend when I first moved up to uh, undisclosed said metropolitan area. And uh, we roommate together for, I don't know how long, like two years, three years? I don't know. How long, uh, how long was it? Yeah, change? something like that. We, yeah, we spent, what, one year in 206 and another year in 220, something like that? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, at the time, uh, well, I mean, this is when you start playing. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, Jim. Or give us your oh, yeah. guest for today. <clears throat> give, me, give us who is... Uh, Shem. Who is Shem Campbell? Wow. Um, <laughs> or, uh, what have you been doing lately? Or well, okay. however you want to take it. Introduce yourself a little bit. What do we need to know about you? All right. Well, um, I guess some key identifiers, background would be that I was born and raised in Kansas. Um, we kind of grew up on a funny farm kind of like a McDonald's farm with all different kinds of animals. Um, We didn't really commit to one thing. Um, And yeah, and I'm very artistic. I was like a city boy growing up in the country, didn't really feel like I belonged. I was very different. And that caused a lot of conflict with my world and surroundings. And so um, long story short, it made me who I am today. Um, all those conflicts and struggles and being different um, really uh, refined me uh, through a fire. And so now, you know, I've got fast forward. I, I got a bachelor's in glass blowing. I have a master's in uh, Middle Eastern history and linguistics. And I've been a teacher for 17 years, uh, public school the last five. And now I'm currently working on two businesses. And so I decided, I mastered the teaching world. I mastered child psychology and I won over, I won over the hearts and minds of a thousand kids, at least a thousand, probably more. Um, And so my method works. And even the bad kids, even the class clowns, the disruptive ones, the, the ADD, the ones that are diagnosed with all kinds of traumas and issues, it didn't matter. Um, and so I had such success in that area. I thought to myself, uh, what if I had a global reach? What if I could change the world? What if I'm crazy enough to do that and I could help people? Mm-hmm. And so I went into business for myself, uh, to be a parent coach, to help families have healthy relationships with their children so that they don't end up like me who ran away when I was 18 and didn't want to have anything to do with my family. I was wounded. I was hurt. I was, there was even some abuse at times and I couldn't wait to get out of there and I never wanted to go back. And so I just don't Mm -hmm. want that for parents. I don't want that for children and I want to help them and I want to have a global impact. And so I'm also, I'm doing that. And on the side, I'm also helping men with confidence uh, in their dating lives Um, because that was something I also struggled with, um, because growing up being different, everybody bullied me, they destroyed my dreams, they put me down. So it created a negative voice inside my head to where I couldn't even be confident enough to find the love of my life or my partner, my mate. And so I help men with that and I help parents and children with the other. And that's where I'm at. Awesome. awesome. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of it, man. I wish you still did the, gla- the glass blowing, though. 
Right. It's a nice um, thing though, but you still don't do it on the side though. But you've told me before it's like it's too much of an expense to get that hobby restarted, right? Yeah, unless I, I mean, I could rent some time in a glass shop, uh, but it's really not on my radar right now. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, the, the, <laughs> the last thing I've really done is comic book drawing, and that's another passion of mine. And so I've reached a, I've reached a level that um, I actually fulfilled my dream. When I was a kid, I wanted to have a certain level of comic book skills in drawing, and I feel like I've achieved that. I feel like I'm... I actually do professional work. Um, so, yeah, just a lot of hobbies. Shem, I got, I got so many questions for you, man. Um, first one is, I guess, when did you run away? At, at what age? And, and, and what was the tipping point that, like, just made you leave? Like, do you remember that day? Can you walk me down that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I didn't run away, like, in the sense of, uh, it, it was like, it was kind of proper. Like I, I ran away in the sense that I had to get out of there, but I left when I was 18. I left, um, because I got into college and I had a car finally. And, um, but I guess what led up to me just having to break free was just, um, you know, my mother, um, God love her. She, she had mental illnesses uh, multiple. And it was just a tumultuous childhood. Um, you know, every day it was like, you know, the, I lost the keys, I lost the grocery, uh, the grocery money. So, you know, every day we would just be searching all over the house. Um, you know, spending at least a couple hours a day searching because Mm. she, she just couldn't remember. And, um, you know, there was abusive times where, uh, man, like physical, even, even a little inappropriate, um, at times, um, which really Mm. weirded me out. Um, and, but you know, she was sick and my sister even told me that she saw her, I was a very hyperactive child, um, very intelligent and she didn't know how to handle me. So my sisters told me that she even saw me putting her meds in my macaroni and cheese to calm me down. And I think she was taking Haldol or some sort of uh, prescription for her uh, situation. Um, but yeah, she, there was, there's one time where she, I was so scared, you know, she said, so basically she wanted me to do something. And she said, say, yes, mother, I will do it quickly. And I was like, that's weird. Like I was young, but I was smart enough to be like, this is odd. Like, I've never heard this before. Like all of a sudden she wanted me to say, yes, mother, I'll do it quickly. And I was like, you know, I was like, what? And, and because I gave her a little pushback, she got so angry and she started convulsing, like shaking with anger. She grit her teeth, her eyes bugged out of her head and she got up and I ran, I ran for fear of my life. Um, I ran down the hall, you know, as a little boy. So I ran out of house. Finally, she Mm -hmm. caught me. Um, with a fly swatter. And it was one of those old school fly swatters with a plastic head and a wire handle. And she hit me uh, until the plastic head came off and I was wearing shorts. And so, so when that plastic head comes off, there's two wire prongs at the end. And so she shredded my leg up with the wire and I was bleeding. I was just bleeding. The blood was running down my legs and and I, and I told her, I said, look what you did. And then she goes, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Like she would switch on a dime, like from fury to compassion. It was very strange. Um, mm. she, you know, one, and then the same thing happened. She, uh, we were in the car and she said the same thing. Say, yes, mother, I'll do it quickly. And I was just like, no, I'm not saying that. and um she so she pulled over the car and she went to a stranger's house and i don't know what they told him what she told them but it must have been like i was a horrible child and they come out and the old man i I assume he was like a grandparent's age um and he said because well because what happened is i locked her out of the car 
she pulled over and she was going to get a, a one by one. If you can imagine, it was like, a, well, maybe it was two by two. It was like a one inch by one inch or two inch by two inch. Like it was like a square, but a, a long rectangle, if that makes sense. It was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was basically a two by four, a block of wood that we used to hold up the, the hatchback in her car because the hatchback, the hydraulics the, that held it up were broken. So we held it up with a stick. So she went to the back and got this stick, but she left the keys in the ignition. So I was a smart kid, and I locked her out of the car. <laughs> I was so scared. I locked her out of the car um, when she went to get that stick and shut the hatchback. So um, then she went into the person's house, and the old man come out, and he says, if you don't open this car right now, you're going to jail. And I was sobbing. I was crying. I was in third grade. Um mm. So I was pretty young and I was just, I believed him, you know, he was an adult, so I had no choice but to believe him. And it was a lie just to scare me, to get me into compliance. And she actually called the cops on me. So the cop car showed up and he was the, the cop was the only one on my side. And I remember sitting in the cop car uh, and I was just, just bawling my eyes out and thinking I was going to jail. And the, the policeman was like, no, no, it's okay, calm down. You're not going to jail. And anyway, that was basically the end of it, but just so many traumatic experiences and memories with some pretty bad parenting. Um, and you know, that was just my mother, that wasn't uh, anybody else. Um, you know, I had my grandmother mm -hmm. who hated my mother and she would always rehearse stories about her every day. And then she would say, you're going to be just like your mother. And mm -hmm. I knew she hated my mother. So it was basically like saying, you hate me. Why do, so, they, why do, they, why do they do that? If they hate this person so much, why would they want to project that other person on you? Like, do you want two people to hate now? Like, why, do you want to, why do you want me to be like this person you hate already? I don't know. It just seems so counterproductive yeah. and like what you're adding another number to your to the people you dislike it just seems very unwise to go about that kind of like you know projecting yeah. towards that on the especially <clears throat> on the young right and i would say this is that here's the reason the reason is that you know parents parents are not perfect and parents have not uh you know there's there's a scale you know i'm sure there's there's lots of great parents out there and then there's a lot of parents who want to be great parents, but maybe they've suffered in their life. Maybe they have a lot of trauma and triggers and they need, they need to work through that. And so what happens is, you know, I think it starts with a belief. You know, we grew up with a belief that uh, original sin, like uh, uh, you're born with a sin nature and you're born kind of evil or you have a propensity to do wrong. And so when they view children like that, rather than viewing children as... Uh, learners and beginners. Hey, it's okay. You made a mistake. Let's learn from it. That's not the attitude. The attitude is you're a bad kid. How dare you? You should be ashamed of yourself. And they look at you as if you're evil, though you're just trying to experiment and navigate the world that you have no clue how to navigate. Mm -hmm. And, and um, <clears throat> so, and to know, you know, that's how they were raised. That's how our parents were raised too. So it's a cycle. It's not their fault. They, went, they were taught that when they were a kid. And, and also, they're being triggered. So when the child behaves in a way that bothers them, you know, parents are stressed out. They work hard. They come home. They're tired and exhausted. And they don't really, it doesn't really help them to have an active, hyper, happy child who's just having a good time. It, it's it's, uh, it takes away from their emotional state. And so they get triggered and then they react emotionally. So it's an emotional thing. It's not a thought out thing. Um, they're just reacting. So just like, mm. just like children react to their environment and get emotional, parents do the same thing because we're all humans. But what it does is it keeps the cycle of trauma and triggers going to where, how can you escape from this cycle? The only way I escaped from this was getting mentors and thank God for the internet 
because I wouldn't have been able to find people who, you know, if I was stuck in that world, that poor, you know, we were poor, we were isolated. Um, we, we, we were kind of, we didn't like the world. We viewed the world as an evil place. So if I didn't have the internet and YouTube and, and places to learn from great minds and uh, because I'm not a reader, I hate reading, I, I would have stayed in that same funk and that same rut, I believe. Mm. It's powerful, man. There's a lot of parallels between your story, also mine, but but something I recently read about was like, or, or watch actually on YouTube was um, this documentarian was, was talking to kids who were raised on like uh, in the in these cults um, mm. where in within the cult themselves, you know, it, it, it was like a weird family structure. You had multiple moms, multiple dads, things like that. And you live very isolated and, and you're you know told to listen to this leader. And, and then, you know, eventually those kids grow up, they, they, they kind of find themselves or, or, or asking these questions. And, and eventually, you know, they, they get the courage to, to leave and, and, and venture out and find other people to, who have, you know, similar questions and, and, and things like that. So uh, that's powerful, man. Um, for me, I, I resonate with that because my mom was a young mom. Right. At mm-hmm. the same time. So she, she had me when she was, uh, man, I don't even know, 19, 20 years old, maybe. Um, which, uh, mm-hmm. to me, when I, when I think about it, like 1920, I wasn't ready to be a, a dad. I'm still not ready to be a dad right now, you know? Um, so they're like, they're learning as they're going. And my, me and my mom have actually had this conversation of, of where like, I was kind of like the Guinea pig child, meaning like, you know, she was learning how to be a parent at the time. So a lot of the things that, that, uh, that she thinks works as a parent and the things that she's learned over the years that, that worked, you know, they're, they're first tested with me, right. The, the, the things that didn't go well, um, were ran through me first. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy kind of, um, uh, amalgamation, right. Of, of people just trying to just navigate the world together. Um, mm-hmm. the question, question I have for you is like, um, I mean, obviously like that experience was like, what kind of brought you to, you know, becoming, um, a teacher, um, and mm-hmm. then, you know, starting your business kind of, you know, helping people, you know, be better parents. Do you, do you have kids of your own? Uh, I, well, I do. And I don't, I don't have kids, biological kids, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a single man. Um, I'm a bachelor. I have, uh, I, so I've been sort of a stepfather figure. So it's kind of a complicated situation, but as a teacher, you know, I invest in those children as if they were my kids. I look at them and say, you know what? I may never have children in my life, but I will be a father to the fatherless. I will be a father to these kids in a way, not to replace their biological father, but to be a mentor and love them. And there's a lot of kids that I've taught who both parents are in prison and they don't have mm-hmm. parents. And, and so, you know, a lot of the girls uh, at school would call me dad. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. And I, you know, it was just their own choice. They came to it from their own uh, volition. Um, but, you know, I don't know. They must have felt the love and the mentorship and they related it to that fatherly figure Um, but I did have a situation where I was dating someone and she had, uh, two kids and I was sort of a stepfather figure to them. And I had to battle with that, you know, cause they thought, uh, he's taking away my mother and he's replacing my dad. And so I would see it come out in the psychology, right? So the, Mm -hmm. the daughter would, you know, if I ever like one time I cut the, the son's hair you know, and that's kind of like a father son thing. He's cutting his son's hair and the daughter would come in and just start talking about her dad. Oh, my dad does an amazing haircut and da, 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 da. And uh, ew, you're, you're cutting your, his hair. Like, and it looks like you, like that was kind of her attitude. Mm, Um, (laughs) It was, it was pretty funny, but you can see the psychology there and what's really going on by her actions and her words. And you know, I didn't take offense. I didn't get triggered. I didn't get mad. I just said, I, I, I rewarded her. I said, that's great. I, I bet your father, your father probably can cut hair better than mine, but this is the best I can do right now. And so that's the way I handled it because, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience with letting go of my ego. You know, your ego says I'm special. I demand fair treatment. People should treat me. I want everybody to like me. But in the very least, people should not treat me badly. 
people should not treat me poorly. And that's what the ego says. And <clears throat> but if you haven't done the work to earn that respect, if you haven't done the work to earn that love and that um, people valuing you, people treating you properly, and sometimes people are going to treat you improperly, even if you're doing everything right. But, you know, sometimes we demand that of the world when, um, you know, the only way to earn that in another human is to provide value. The only way for someone to look up to you, to follow you, to, to need something from you, want something from you, and to respect you is to provide that value. So you have to do, you have to understand psychology, you have to understand marketing, like what does this person value? What do they want? Let me give that to them. And then they will, they'll get addicted in a sense. They'll, they'll want more. So as a teacher, that's all I did. I just, you know, my first year was hell. And I would have nightmares of like, you know, getting into fist fights with kids. And I would wake up in a cold sweat. Um, but then after the first year, I said to myself, wait a second. You know, I can't change these kids, but I can change myself. What, how do I understand them? What do they value? And the conclusion I came to was that all kids, they go to school and all they want is to have fun and they want to be cool and they want to have friends. That is it. That is the value that they come to school for. Most of them don't care about learning. They don't see the future. They can only see what's in front of them. And they can see what's in front of them is that the, the education is a pain in the neck and it's boring and it's, it's hard. So naturally they're gonna make jokes. And so what I realized is, and also here's another thing, they're not getting paid for it. Imagine if you go to an arduous job that's just a drudgery and, and you're working your tail off, you're listening to boring talks from the boss and your, your job is a pain, you're not getting rewarded, you're not even getting paid. You know, would you go back to that job? None of us would. No human would in their right mind. But we somehow expect these children to just be glad to go to school because they're getting an education investing in their future. Well, that's true, but that's an adult mindset. That's not a child mindset. So here's what I did. Here's the secret. I took their passions. I took their passions and what they were invested in because guess what? I was an art teacher and everybody, you know, said, oh, you're, they like you because you're the art teacher. They like you because everybody loves art. Well, that is not true. I had so many kids who hated art and I had so many kids who were so defeated in their minds that they couldn't draw. So they just threw a tantrum because they were so hard on themselves. So there was plenty of challenges for me. Um, and so what I did was I took their passions. I said, what are you interested in? What do you love to do? What, what, what do you love to do when no one forces you to do it, when you're just by yourself? And they would tell me, I love Fortnite. I love this video game. I love playing with my friends. I love sports. I'd say, okay, great. Let's take your favorite sport. Is it soccer, basketball? Let's draw a picture, a self-portrait of you playing your favorite sport. Let's draw a self-portrait of you being your favorite superpower or superhero. Um, and so I would connect, I would be relevant to them and relatable by connecting with their life, their home life, their worldview. I would connect with their passions and I would incorporate that into art. And all those kids loved my class and they, and they looked forward to coming to it. And not only that, here's another thing, and then I'll stop talking, the, but I sought after my passions myself. As I was teaching, I was working on my business and I was through, through following your passion, it gives you energy. So many people are walking around in dirt mode and they have a cloud covering them because they're, they may be miserable, they hate their job, they're, they're, they didn't fulfill their dreams and they're sad, they're depressed. I know because my parents were that way. And I, and, and I was a happy child, and then I eventually became depressed just by being around them. And, and so uh, I was following my passions as I was teaching them art. 
And so I was inspiring them. I was pushing them to be great. I was pushing them to, to, to be their best self. And they were inspired and they were motivated, it motivated them. It, my energy gave them energy and mm-hmm. they would great art. And so I think a lot of the times, you know, some of the parents are tired. They don't have energy. Maybe they, they've lost their passion. Maybe they couldn't accomplish their dreams. Maybe they didn't get the love of their life. Um, and they have a, a life full of disappointments and that's how they view the world. And then they come home and they're not, they can't deal with this child who has tons of energy and who wants to be loud and has dreams and goals. And, you know, it's a contrast, it's a conflict. And um, Mm. that's, it's just the world we're living in. Oh, absolutely, man. I will say one, yeah, I would say that um, some, one of my favorite people in the world in my lifetime, the most impactful were like my teachers in school. I can name like, I can think of three of them from the top of my head. And like, they're the reason why I eventually aspire to be a high school teacher one day. Like just, just point blank, just because like how much impact they had on me, um, uh, related to art, man, art was like one of the biggest, most important things in, in my life because it was like the biggest like confidence booster that I ever had, like mm. sitting in art, making something cool, being able to show that to my friends and then the teacher complimenting me on that. It was like, it was nothing like I felt before just to just put, put that out there. And, and obviously David, you're, you're an artist, so you know, I feel like art is just like a great kind of, kind of connector, but you know, you layer inspiration on top of that. Like it's, it's, there's no ceiling to that. Right. No. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Plus the subject of just art alone is there's no rules to it, you know? Mm. So that alone frees you so much to be the maximum individual that you were meant to be, you know, in your expressions and your feelings and, and how you view the world. Because if you pull whatever you made outside the canvas or out of the paper, it's subject to harsh criticism because there's different worldviews, there's different feelings, there's different thoughts on things. Though those feelings could still arise towards a, an art, right, or an art piece, but they seem to be encapsulated in this protective, you know, sack or whatever that I don't know uh, allows you to be the most you. And then on top of that, since there's no rules, it's very subjective. Um, when people do congratulate you. They're congratulating something so unique that I don't know. It just it, it fills you up so much. It, it it gives you a lot of energy, and it is an ego boost because not only are you being congratulated, but you're being congratulated based on your uniqueness alone. Versus congratulations, you know, you look the same like everybody else. Well, no one feels good like you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. art congratulates the individual within you, and. I think that's why music and all these other art forms we enjoy it because it, it, it rewards being individualistic to its truest sense like the reason we like rappers is because they, you know they're they're covered in like fine fashion with money and and women all around and they're basically telling you they're the shit <laughs> and because yeah. they literally feel like they're the shit you know and, and they're embodying the most like egoistic version of themselves and i don't know i'm not saying that art's that way but it it, it places you at the center in a very unique way that other professions can or other oh. hobbies. Can. Yeah. Most deaf, most deaf. Um, a question just came to mind uh, f- that, that I had for you, Shem. Um, I yeah. think one of the hardest things as, as a teacher, especially one that, that work with kids who are going through things is like um, knowing when to like draw the line of when, like w- where to draw the line of how much you can help them. Um, how, how do you navigate that? How much you can help them when it comes to art or as a person? Just, yeah. As a, as a person. Yeah. When do you know that they're lost causes? Okay. <laughs> That's a good question. Oh, by the way, I wanted to say, David, I loved that little pithy statement you made that art congratulates the individual within you, man. That's a powerful statement. I love that. Um, but yes, to answer the question, um, there are no lost causes. I, I took the viewpoint that I've never met a bad kid. I've never met an unintelligent kid. Um, I was, and I was brought, kids were brought to me, you know, in, in the school system, we have a thing called 504. And that means they have like, uh, you know, maybe ADD and they've had all these diagnoses and certain like 
uh, dyslexia, things like that. And, you know, we're such a culture that is so quick to run to pharmaceuticals and just give me the pill and these quick fixes that are unnatural and unhealthy. And these poor kids, it's like, and, 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 and not faulting parents, it's like they think that's what's good to do. They're trying to do the right thing for their kid. And they're trying to also get peace as well. And, you know, if their kid is hyper, they want peace and the, 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 the pills calm them down. So it's kind of like a, they think they're doing right and healthy by their child and being a good parent. And it also gives them peace. So it's like they think it's a win-win. But in reality, I've never met a kid with, uh, with diagnosis 504 that couldn't do the work and that couldn't be engaged. I just had to learn how to engage them. I had to learn that. And um, so let me talk about lost causes. So, you know, uh, I was the, I was probably the teacher that, I don't know, people hated. Um, I don't know, maybe they loved me and they hated me. I don't know. I'd have to ask them, but, but, you know, teachers would come to me and they'd say, oh my gosh, so-and-so I can't, I just can't stand him. I can't handle him. And I just said, hmm, I don't really have that problem. And, you know, that would kind of end the conversation. I don't think that that was really helpful. Looking back, maybe they thought I was gloating or bragging or communicating that I'm such a great teacher and you're not. Maybe they took offense to it. I really hope not, um, because that was not my intention. My intention was to communicate, maybe there's something to learn. Maybe there's something you're doing, because I'm I'm a normal guy. I'm not, I'm not different than anyone else other than I'm curious and I search out a matter to figure it out. And I've always been a, a puzzle. As a kid, I was always putting puzzles together and solving problems. And so the reality is this, you have a bad kid. Well, what is his psychology? What is happening? He probably has a horrible home life. That's one option. He, he maybe has something unfulfilled in his life. Maybe he doesn't have love. Maybe he doesn't have food. Um, you know, maybe uh, he's in survival mode. If a child is in survival mode and they're just trying to survive, they don't care what you have to say. They do not care about education. They do not care about your, your wonderful lesson that you stayed up all night to plan. You might prize it as a, as a gold trophy, but that child is going to trample it in the mud because it doesn't mean Jack until he has love, until he has acceptance and um, food and sleep and the basic human needs. Okay. So I had compassion for these kids. And, and what I realized was that it was the same trend with every teacher. And then the teachers would say, this is the bad kid. Um, And then they would punish, 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 punish. We would uh, scold, scold, scold. And why do we scold? We want to make them afraid because fear is the fastest way to get them into compliance and to obedience. But eventually it becomes white noise and then they start ignoring adults and they don't even listen and they're not afraid of adults. And that's why they break the rules. They can break the rules even more because it's such white noise, they don't care. Mm. And, And people don't understand this concept. And so, the, the child is basically saying, I don't give a damn about what you think or what you say until you show me that you care, until you show me that you understand me, you get me. And so here's what I did. So I said, there's no bad kids. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take these quote unquote bad kids and I'm going to give them, I'm going to make them leaders because obviously they're smart. Obviously they're bold and courageous So focusing on the positive, if I only focused on the fact that they were breaking my rules, I would always have thought they were a bad kid. But if I rewarded the positive and said, you know, this kid's actually pretty smart. He's talking back to me. He's 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 making jokes and interrupting my lesson. He's got a sense of humor. It has to be intelligent to make jokes and to have humor. This guy's a smart guy. You know, so how do I keep don't throw the baby out with the bathwater? How do I? reward his good qualities, but also at the same time say, hey, now, you know, uh, discourage the negative. So, so I did one thing. If they were interrupt my lesson and make a joke and get the friends laughing, get all the whole class laughing with them because they want attention, they want importance and significance, 
Maybe their parents not giving them attention at home. So they're going to get it even if it's negative attention. So I would stop them. I'd interrupt them. You know, that's a, that's a power positioning thing. The authority, if, if you want to position yourself as an authority, you have to interrupt at times. And so I'd interrupt and I'd say, hey, that's great. I love that you are intelligent. You're obviously intelligent. You want your life to matter. You, you want to make people laugh. And that's a great quality. You're providing the, the value of laughter to all of these friends. And they love you for it. And that's amazing. But not while I'm talking. Okay, so I would reward the positive and I would discourage the negative because it was disrespectful to interrupt my, my, uh, my lesson. It was, and he wasn't respecting me. He knows that. Um, and then the other thing I did was I made them leaders. I said, you know what? No one trusts you. No one trusts you. No one believes in you. Everyone thinks you're the bad kid. They treat you like the bad kid. And then you adopt that role and you say to yourself, I'm the bad kid, so I'm just going to do what bad kids do. But secretly, they're hurting inside. And no one can see it. All they can see is their own pain. That you're a pain in my neck, kid. So now I'm going to punish you and yell at you to get you to comply. But, they're not, but that does not engender respect. That does not engender love and reciprocation. That does not engender admiration and following. I wanted kids to follow me. I wanted to be a leader that would not focus on my goals and dreams, but focus on their goals and dreams. And when I focused on their goals and dreams and inspired them to, to their own greatness, I had every follower in the room, every, everyone in the room was a follower and a, and a listener and engaged. And, they, and you know what? New kids would come into the class, brand new kids that had never been into the school. And because I was the tribal leader, all the kids respected me and loved me and, and sung my praises. So that when a new kid came in, even if it was a rebellious kid, he would have to follow suit with the tribe. So even if he acted out, he would look around. He would, like I, One time I had a kid, he, he was new, and he cracked a joke. But then he looked around and nobody was laughing. And nobody was giving him attention because all the attention was on me. And then he quickly got the message that this is the leader and everybody loves this guy. Maybe, there's, maybe I need to change because everybody seems to respect Mr. Campbell. And so when I did that, get, winning even the bad kids by giving them leadership and trust and responsibility, they rose to the occasion because no one else in their life believed in them. Mm. And so that was really the secret to my success. I, I agree with you 100%, man, because uh, I was in the principal's office at, like every other day for and since like the third grade at least i mean all up till high school i mean i think i was supposed i was throughout my whole life i was supposed to be expelled at least i think two or three times once in lower elementary which is hard to do but i almost got there and middle school <laughs> almost i think and then almost again in sophomore year but i agree with you that the teachers that i had didn't do a good job of being able to filter out good qualities and bad qualities and like you said, I mean, it, it's quite easy just to look at the bad and throw away all the good stuff with it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's where I felt like they failed me. On top mm -hmm. of that, the school was a small school with a man. My graduating class was like 22 people, so mm -hmm. it, it didn't have the extracurricular activities for someone like me with that extra energy or for that that need of attention to go find it somewhere outside of the class because there mm -hmm. was no something else outside of the classroom. There was probably one sport, which is basketball, and that was about it. There was no other, like, there wasn't drama. There wasn't, I don't know what else I can think of, uh, but there was no other extra outlets, and uh, I was labeled quickly, and so were mm. some other friends of mine who were labeled bad kids. I remember one of the, on, in seventh grade, when I first came to the school, uh, probably like the first month or two or whatever, uh, the school had some type of extra, like, outside of school event, whatever. And I remember the the wife of the principal at the time had approached me. And I, not at a random. I think there was something that was going on. And she came to me and my other friend. And I don't even know how the conversation went about. But right out, I was I was called a delinquent. And I look back on that now and I was like, what what is this teacher slash the wife of the principal or the superintendent? telling me and two other kids at 14 years old that were delinquent. Mm. 
and uh, that always bothered me. And it made me, like you said, it only made me want to fit the fit the bill even more. It made me want to rage more, you know, mm. because okay, well, you think you have it figured out in your self righteous condemnation of who I am, mm. while your own child is in my class and all he does is brown nose all day. I know that your kid is unoriginal and lacks individualism, but you champing him around like some kind of prize. But let me tell you, that's no prize because it's generic. It's over the shelf. I'm not over the shelf. I'm not OTC woman. And so, but see, that was my, that was not that I told her that man, I would have been really expelled, but that, see, that was my, that was my rage that they, they didn't see uniqueness or like, or not that I'm not saying unique, but they didn't, I was the class clown, uh, me and some other friends. So I, I always enjoyed being out there and that was never considered a good thing. And, and um, yeah, I never really enjoyed that. And I just agree with what you said. It, it only makes you want to rage on even more and, mm. and stick your heels into the sand or however the metaphor saying goes. And uh, yeah. I, would, I would just, I'd be worse because of it. And I enjoyed being bad, like Megamind. See that movie? That's mm. kind of what, how it is. Um, but anyway, that's that's crazy, man. It, it blows my mind thinking, like, or just listening to all this because, like, it, I'm thinking about how this translates into adulthood and, like, how a lot of these interactions still exist, like, in adulthood as well, like, where people label you or you know, people don't understand how to channel your energy or, or who you are, so they put you in this bucket and they they treat you like that, and then, um, you know, and then you kind of subconsciously take on that identity or whatever it is just to, like, I don't even know, like kind of like hypocritically, like, uh, uh, like rebel against them. I don't know. You, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, mm-hmm. it's this weird kind of like psychological thing that, that, that you deal with. Sure. And mm-hmm. I know, I know personally, and, and I'll admit to this, I've taken that and I'm sure it's fed into me subconsciously because I know that I've, I've, I've taken that with me outside of high school because now when I view authority figures, it isn't, I don't know. It's very, is it friend or foe? And mm. I take it very personally because mm. the previous authority figures were neither friends, but on top of that, though they were trying to get rid of the bad manners of my character, they've completely demonized my entire personality that came mm. along with that character. So when I see authority now, I don't see just a re- I don't see a figure that spits out rules and orders, but I see a figure who is uncaring and unkind to the individual within me, my, my, my real self or, or however you want to call it, my authentic way of being, you know? And so it only made me hate authority even more. And that's what, not that I've had trouble with authority, with the law or anything like that, but as far as like uh, any, you know, in college or, or authority figures at work, um, I'm very, very sometimes sensitive because I know that the rejection or at least subconsciously, I feel like the rejection Uh, goes deeper than just the wrong thing that I did. It's like, no, you're denying me. You're denying Mm -hmm. my existence, (laughs) Uh, which is usually not Mm -hmm. the case. So that's something that I sometimes have to work on. Like, okay, this person may not like what I said, but doesn't necessarily hate me entirely as a human being for what Mm -hmm. I said, you know? And um, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess it's that shame or guilt that you place on yourself. Because back in the day when they told you you were bad, like you had that quiet moment looking at yourself in the mirror, like, am I the bad guy? You know, yeah. and you carry that with all your whole life, especially if, if somebody else that loves you doesn't tell you differently. Mm. Uh, you, you get branded that way. So you have like a chip on your shoulder or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's amazing, it- man. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's amazing, but <laughs> no, but yeah, I'm glad you think it's good that I'm sharing it. But yeah, man, it no, no. Amazing. <laughs> it's amazing because I'm having a realization myself because I was kind of kind of on the the flip side of that coin, where like growing up, I had pretty great authority figures, and when I when I made it to the real world to adulthood, I respected these authority figures. But then I found out quickly, like why do like why am I respecting them? Or you know, they, they did something where I'm like wait a minute, like what just happened? Like, I thought you were the authority figure, but now like you're, you're this, you know what I mean? Like you're mistaken or, or yeah. whatever. Like, you know, it was like this whole kind of like, um, realization of like, man, I, sh- I shouldn't respect the authority figure like this. I need to question, I need to be, you know, more cognizant of like what's going on. Right. And like, sometimes these people in, in people in positions of power, they, they shouldn't be there or they don't know what they're doing, you know, that kind of thing. And then struggling yeah. with that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Shem, I had a question for you, uh, kind of just switch up the topic just a little bit. Um, but it's referring to something you'd mentioned uh, about, um, medicating kids. So, I, you know, I, one of my best friends growing up had ADHD and, and, you know, they gave him Ritalin or, or Adderall, whatever it was. And, um, I just knew that it was a pill that he took to calm him down. Right. Cause like before that he'd just be going crazy. We'd skateboard. We like go do stuff like chase, you know, chase dogs, cats, whatever, like doing wild kid shit. Right. Um, mm-hmm. but then he'd take the pill and all of a sudden he'd be on his ass and just like, we just watch TV or, or whatever it is. And I was always curious about it. I was like, dang, I was like a pill could do that to you. And then it wasn't until I, 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 I you know, I took Adderall, my first Adderall probably in college. And I was like, Whoa, this is like ridiculous. Like I'm so focused. I have so much like, energy to like do this one task thing you know um and it was just like it was a really like crazy moment for me like having the realization of like man this is what they fed my friend like when we were like 10 years old um so wh- what do you think about like medicating kids like with uh you know these, these psychoactive kind of drugs okay um so i'll say that number one i'm not a doctor um my sister's a pharmacist not me so i really uh, very ignorant on the subject, but this is my, this is my, I guess I could say my feeling and my uh, experience and my uh, decisions based on my character. And that is, I would approach diagnosis and pharmaceuticals with much trepidation. I would, I would use it as a last resort. And, you know, I've had, I've had many clients, right? So I've had many clients that have, you know, basically talked about the hyperactive kid or the the one that's hard to handle. And I always tell them, well, that's good news. You know, that that means your child is smart. Your, your child maybe thinks outside the box, is okay with breaking a few of the rules because they're a thinker, they're a, they're a doer. And they those are the type of kids that go on taking on the world. And so, but I can see why for parents, it can be a pain because maybe parents have low energy and they're hard to handle. And so their main focus is peace. And many times we sacrifice individuality for the sake of peace. Mm -hmm. And we we stunt that growth there. Um, But I would say this, so uh, every client that I've had that has said they've had a kid that's hard to handle, I would say, well, what what do they focus on? What, What can they do and you don't have to tell them to do? And for many, like they'll start, they have an answer. Like they'll say, oh, well, my son uh, loves uh, archaeology and um, he wants to be a paleontologist. He's always looking at bones and, and digging up things. And I said, you should focus on that. And so, you know, we all have our, our passions and our, and, our, and our things. And we, no one needs to tell us to do it. No one has to pay us to do it. We do it on our own and we have an extreme focus. And I was the exact same way with art. So I had a tumultuous childhood. So my therapy was to go out and do wood carving or drawing and just be alone. And, and I, I did not know hunger. I did not know time. I did not know sleep. I, I, would, I would like zap out of my trance and realize that it was nighttime and I should probably go inside and go to bed and eat something. And I, w- and I wouldn't realize I was hungry until I stopped working on my art. And so I think we all have a level of focus. It just we have to focus on what we like and enjoy. But, but the mainstream narrative is focus on all this other stuff that you hate, you know, or the stuff that doesn't come naturally to you. Or maybe, maybe it's not that this stuff is boring. It's just maybe we're presenting it in a boring way and it's not engaging you. And but we, you, if you don't listen, if you don't uh, wise up, you're a you're a bad kid, and or maybe you have a disability. So let's slap this drug on you, um, so that you can listen to my boring lecture. So you ha- you're forced with a question: Why is it always the child's fault? Why is it always the child's problem? Aren't aren't we the adults? Aren't we the smarter, the more experienced, and navigating the world? You know, why is it always, oh, you're a bad kid because you're not listening to my lecture? Or should I say, is my lecture engaging? Am I, am I, uh, am I holding their attention? Maybe I can hack, do some hacks or things to hold their attention rather than just accusing them of no focus. And then you start to think, oh, well, then maybe they have a disability. So let's get them diagnosed 
and uh, let's get him a pill. Now, I've never taken those diagnosis tests. I've never had anything like that. So I don't know what they're like. But um, I, it makes me wonder if, again, it's giving them something that they can't focus on. Maybe you should test them with their passion and see if they have ADD, ADHD with their passion. You know, that would be a different test. But see, most mm. of the time, we're not considering all the options. And um, there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge. And um, yeah, uh, I, so I would, I would just approach the subject with great trepidation. Mm. Well, one thing I will say based on what you said, Vu, because you talked about your friend being young and being all over the place and then you later on as an adult in college like you saw a great benefit right so i can see how i mean i don't know if this is what you're saying but you saw the benefit in adulthood but you may not see the benefit for a child and i'm going to go off on like just a theory but i think that children uh seem to be i think children are very in tuned to something higher call mm. it some form of spirituality or they're they're more in tuned with the universe or their subconscious they're pure in the sense, and because of that, they're just a pure stream of consciousness coming through, coming out of many uh, complex, sophisticated tunnels, right? And they manifest themselves in trying to chase squirrels or making yourself a bow and arrow or climbing a tree and jumping off their firecrackers, whatever it may be, right? It may seem simple in its manifestation, but really, it's like this wave of just life pouring through them. And it's it, it, that type of flow is very beneficial and i think as we age not that we dumb down but i think as we start carrying on the worries of this world and we start analyzing or becoming a little bit more introspective we notice our our positives and our negatives we see in, in that the inadequacies in our lives and other people's lives i'm not saying that bad shit closes off that door from the universe or whatever you want to call it but i believe because it narrows out a little bit, I think in a weird way, Adderall then now helps because you're not, you're the two tunnels that are now open. And then this is, I'm speaking very abstractly is uh, now all your efforts are being poured into one channel and Adderall is just streaming it for you. But as a child is just, it, there's so many things going on. that It, it becomes an, a negative when you should be enjoying that post. And I'm saying that I think there's more benefits for Adderall as an adult because you're no longer wrestling with all the data and information uh, from the place that you were before the womb, you know? And so, because I know that I've noticed Adderall being a huge uh, benefit in my life, because uh, as an adult, that kind of pattern or thinking is, is not beneficial. Unless you're like maybe some philosopher and you have tenor and you have your assistant professor do all the work and you're just there in your office trying to think big things, maybe. But... If you're just a regular individual going through life, like, you know, very task oriented, I think, I mean, I don't think Adderall's a long term solution, but man, does it help. And it feels good for the first hour or two. <laughs> 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 I'm not encouraging, I'm, I'm not encouraging it recreationally, even though that's what a lot of people do. Like oh, it yeah. lasts for eight hours. You could use it functionally. And then the other six hours, you can use it recreationally. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of time slots there. <laughs> that, definitely. So uh, let me tell you guys a story. So <laughs> I, so, so last year I, I was working as like a consultant, right. And, um, I was doing it and then I, I just noticed myself like kind of slipping away. Uh, prior to that, I had like a startup, we, we shut down and you know, was, the passion in me was kind of like dying. I was like, Hey, I just need to make money. Um, like just grind away so I can go, go back to doing what I want to do kind of thing. Right. And like in this kind of like uh, this transition phase, whatever, I felt like this just like the energy leaving my body. So I went to the doctor and I was like, man, maybe I have ADHD. Like maybe this is why I can't focus at work or like I can't just like key in on like what I need to do. Um, I, so I went to the doctor. I, I took the 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 exam that they give you. It's on an iPad. Uh, I don't know if this, it's the same thing for kids, but literally it's just like a questionnaire and they go through the questionnaire and they ask you um, just basically just like mental health questions. It's like, how do you feel when you do this? Um, you know, uh, how do you feel from day to day? Are you happy? Are you sad? Um, you know, when this happens, like, how do you feel? Like it's, it's kind of that kind of thing. And then, then based on the questionnaire, whatever it is, like it leads you to yes, a, yes, you, you have, um, uh, ADHD B you have depression or C you don't have neither of the above. Like you're going to need to get checked again kind of thing. And I was, I was kind of, 
<laughs> all the above. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was in that kind of C category or whatever. And the doctor was like, no, nah, you, you don't have it. I think you just need to like, just figure, you know, figure something out and, and come back for, for tests and, and things like that. And then, um, I, on, you know, on the side of that, I, I just kept taking kind of, you know, Adderall, um, just, just cause, you know, it was just a recreational thing to do and, and it, it helped with like my work and stuff like that. And my perspective of it, of it early on was like, Hey, this is super cool. You know, I can, I'm so energized. I can get everything done. I'm so productive. But then I started feeling like it was a crutch and I hated how it, it made me, it made me feel like so reliant on it. And it made me feel like whenever I wasn't on it, like I wasn't as productive. I couldn't do the same work. I wasn't as smart as I could be. Um, and, and I hated that. And, and nowadays, you know, I, I rarely take it if, if, if ever, you know, last time I took it was a couple of months ago, I think, but, um, mm. yeah, I, it's, yeah, I, it's, it's a balance. Yeah. I would still be interested in take not, not daily. No, but like, Man, I've always enjoyed it uh, because it's not like I took it and did an essay. Essays for me are pretty easy, so like large works are okay. But I really enjoyed it for art. Man, you it you so you already when you're like really like into the flow or zone when you're painting something on a natural state. When you're a natural man, it's just everything fades away, and that level of concentration is so addicting, so addicting, especially when you're painting something. Man, it, it the brush strokes become very sensual. I don't know how to describe it. It's just uh, there's something very, I don't know. Anyways, I sound like a like a druggie, but <laughs> it's it just no, no, yeah, it, man. It could, it, it could go. Uh, you get addicted to accomplishing stuff, which is strange. It's a strange addiction because, like you said, like you don't feel as productive when you're not on it or when you're uh, when you're not on it. So it makes you think, well, I could be doing a lot better if I had it, and that's. There you go. That's where it starts, man. That's when you start abusing it. Next thing you know, you're in the restroom, oh, breaking up in the pills and crushing the beads. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but <laughs> not that I've done yeah. that. <laughs> uh, but any pill could be instant release if you open it and crush it. Uh, but uh, anyways... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but just be clear, like, I, I, I do think that there are certain substances and, and, you know, depends on the person too, like being super beneficial, right? Like I'm a firm believer in like, you know, um, psychedelics for sure mushrooms, acid, things like that. I definitely think those are hella valuable for a lot of people. Um, and it just depends on the person really, you know, at the end of the day, like cannabis is, is also amazing for, for certain types of people too. And others it's, it's not so. Mm, moderate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so my dad, uh, just to speak to that for a second, um, you know, my dad, he wasn't perfect, but he did instill a lot of wisdom in me. And he, he always told me to be natural, you know, um, not that I, I don't, I, you know, not that there, I think there people, um, have definitely found value in those things, but my dad really encouraged me to be natural because, you know, I was in football and basketball and sports and lifting a lot of weights and he didn't want me to get creatine and all these things. He was afraid that it was like steroids or something. And, uh, he didn't want me to get into that. Um, and he always encouraged me to be more natural. And I, and I've always taken that, uh, throughout my life. And, you know, when we're talking about energy and focus and, and drive to accomplish something, uh, I've applied that to that, to that, uh, to that, I've applied that ideology. And what I've discovered is, you know, especially I'm, I'm approaching 40, I'm, uh, almost 37, and I've discovered that the natural things that I do, like go to bed early, uh, wake up early, take a cold shower, work out, eat healthy, um, focus on your passions, just some of these things, it naturally boosts that focus. It naturally gives you energy. A lot of times, you know, uh, we might be drugged by the food that we eat. We might be sluggish because we're eating a bunch of carbs or we're eating a bunch of fast food and we don't even realize it, but that's what, it's not that we can't focus, it's that's zapping our focus. And you know, before we can really be healthy and, and open up the world of possibilities when it comes to focus, energy, and following your passions and drive, we really have to get, a, get away from all the negative stuff. You know, 
uh, you can't really fully function until you've fully gotten, uh, you know, eight hours of sleep. So like, I mean, maybe some people need less, but I need eight at least or nine. And um, my ideal is that I wake up naturally before my alarm. If my alarm is waking me up out of deep sleep, that's a bad thing, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And I won't be able to function the rest of the day. I won't be able to focus. And if I'm eating unhealthy foods, there's another. And if I'm not working out, um, cold showers, um, you know, all these things matter and all these things affect you. When you're young, you have tons of energy, even if you're eating fast food. So as a, at getting older and losing energy, I've really learned to love and take care of my energy. And that helps me focus. And that's why my business, I can focus on it. I never, ever thought of myself as a business person. I always thought of myself as an artist, not an academic, not a, not a moneymaker. Um, but now I've learned that I can do it. And I can enjoy it and I love it and I can focus and I can have energy and it drives me forward because I'm passionate about it. And uh, anyway, that's where I'm currently at. Nice. I, I totally agree, man. If you need a microdose meth uh, to get that going, then you're not even starting in the right place. It's better to accomplish it naturally and then, you know, that's poison. Make those things last minute. Yeah, it's absolutely poison. It would be one thing if, like, meth was naturally found in a banana or an apple. Then I could be like, all right, man, okay, maybe it's naturally found in nature. We're just getting, like, like a B vitamin of it, like a concentrated version. No. Like, so, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so, we're at an hour. Uh, so assuming we're closing up. But uh, unless you wanted to say something, Vu, uh, I was just going to open it up for Shem to plug in his business if you wanted to. No, no. I was going to, I was going to say one thing I'm struggling with right now is like, I need to get back in the gym, man. COVID has left me indoors and, and the energy is depleting from my soul. That's all I had to same, say. Same. I've Home become gym. like a piece of the furniture, man. Like I'm collecting <laughs> dust. I need to move. Yeah. I feel myself Home dying. Gym. Oh yeah. Home. Here's the thing with the home gym. I never use it. I never, I have to go out and see other people working out. I got to get in the vehicle and go. It's it's a mental thing, you know. I need social, to leave the house yeah. to work out. social affirmation, bro. Well, that's a crutch, but you know we can work on sure, that. Sure, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? My ancestors. Oh, hey, I need to go to the next village over to work out my triceps. <laughs> no, dude, that's so lame. You should be able to stay in the village and work out your triceps with your own homeboys in your own little block. And so, really, I'm fighting against the conditioning of these gym memberships that continue extracting the $15 that I don't use month. Here's what I think. Here's what I think it is to give you a little uh, plug, <laughs> plug for the, for the gym and the workout, because I've had to, I've had to hack myself as well. And here's what it is, is that you're thinking of the arduous, arduous, difficult task ahead of you and your comforts and emotions say, no, go back to bed. And they pull you back. And um, yeah, if you go to the gym, it's going to be, there's going to be people there, maybe somebody to motivate you, spot you. Maybe there's some encouragement from social and maybe you just need to be in a different place, like going into an office. And that makes mm -hmm. sense. But let me submit this to you that, that if you just decrease the amount, like, let's just say I'm going to, I'm going to do push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups and just simple stuff for 30 minutes, make it smaller just 30 minutes and then do a 30 minute workout every day and reduce the amount until you can do it. And you're going to, you have to break through a threshold, right? So everything that you start doing is always more difficult up front. But when, once you get in the pattern of doing it, you break through a glass ceiling where your body says, holy crap, this feels amazing. I feel amazing. I feel stronger. I have more energy. I love this because I hated working out too. It was always grueling and, and I hated it. And I was stuffing my face and I, I just couldn't stand it. I was miserable. And um, I was working out four hours a day, no, two hours a day, four days a week and stuffing my face when I was 19. Oh, okay. And because I thought I had to be big and bus muscular to get a woman to get a date. So 
uh, I was motivated by that. But yes, I've learned that you can actually accomplish the same thing through smaller amounts daily, but you gain volume. See, the American work ethic is like, kill yourself. If you can't, you know, do as many pull-ups as you can do. If you can't do any more, pretend there's a gun to your head and do one or two more, right? Well, that ends up destroying your body and you have to take a whole day off the next day. But if you, if you do a light workout and you do it every day and you're not killing yourself, you don't need as much recovery time and you're getting more volume and you look up in the mirror one day and lo and behold, your body looks cut and you feel like you didn't do any effort to do it. But we have this American work ethic that, that makes you not even want to go to the gym. And so there I rest my case. Mm. Compelling, man. That's hella compelling. It reminds me, I was thinking, I was thinking about my great grandmother doing Tai Chi and she lived to like a hundred and something. We don't even know. She wouldn't tell us her birthday. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but yeah, we can close it out here. Shem, was anything you, you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, I was actually um, trying to find my uh, website address for my Facebook. But so I'll just say this then. Um, if you want to look me up, if you're out there listening and you resonated or related to some of the things that I said, and um, uh, if you want to, <laughs> um, if you want to look me up, if you want to learn more and um, just gain more tools to, to make your life better in whatever that is, um, if, if it's parenting or if it's dating, those are two things I'm very passionate about. Um, but yeah, I have a Facebook page. Um, if you look up Shem Campbell, my first name is, uh, is a little different for people. It's spelled S-H-E-M. And then my last name is spelled just like the soup. If you look up Shem Campbell, I have a Facebook page. Um, my program is called Healthy Teen Mentoring. And I have an Instagram page. That is, it's at Healthy Parent Mentoring. But I'm switching the name over to Teen um, because I'm focusing on teens. Um, so I have Instagram, I have Facebook, and I have LinkedIn. And I'm setting, I'm in the process of setting up a YouTube channel. So look me up on Facebook. That's where I'm most active. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to get some information into your hands. Awesome. Cool. Thank you, Shem. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Thank Sean. you. Thanks for being on.